All right, well, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 this morning. If you want to go ahead and, and grab your Bible and turn there. If you uh, don't have a Bible, we put uh, black hardback Bibles under the seats around you. If you don't own a copy of God's Word, that's our free gift to you. We want you to take home a copy of God's Word uh, this morning. So Acts chapter 2, we'll get started in just a moment. We're going to continue our sermon series through the book of Acts. Um, a couple things. First of all, as Brian mentioned, um, we've got some mission trips coming up. And I just wanted to add an extra plug. If you are a family desiring to do a mission work together, that national trip is a fabulous opportunity to do that. Um, our family got to do that this last spring break, and I wasn't sure how it was going to work out with a four-year-old and an eight-year-old and the family. And, uh, but, but even with all the, the chaos, it was just an amazing time of just being on mission as a family. And just highly encourage you to do that, to think about how you could use your spring break for the glory of God. That's just one way you could do that. So I just want to add an extra plug for the national trip coming up. Um, also want to make you aware of if you are visiting with us um, and, you're, and you're wondering how you become a member here at the church, we do that through Connect Class. And that's coming up in October, October 2nd and 9th. It's a two-part class. Um, this is the primary way we do uh, membership. It allows you an opportunity to learn about our church, our history, um, our theology, uh, our vision, where we're going. Uh, it gives you an opportunity to ask questions that may be important to you before deciding to become a member. And so I want to encourage you, if you haven't filled out a Connect card and indicated that you want to be a part of that class, go ahead and do that today. Uh, as you heard earlier, and just drop that in one of the brown boxes, and we'll keep you informed through email about that class and send you reminders um, so that you'll remember to be a part of that class as well. I believe it's the 10 o'clock hour on October 2nd and 9th. 9th that's called Connect Class. So we're going to continue in the sermon series, Acts chapter 2, uh, The Unstoppable Church. This is our fourth week. And today we're going to begin to, to get ready to shift our attention throughout the book of Acts. So today we'll kind of end the, the, the high-level view of the church. So we're going to be talking about the church as a whole today. And then as we wrap up today, we're going to kind of shift now our attention to the individual members of the church. And so it's going to become more and more practical, um, hopefully for you as an individual Christian, um, more and more convicting quite possibly, as we follow the early church and its ministry. And, uh, and so we'll continue that on next week, looking at uh, the basic elements of biblical community. Now, something important to remember. So in our modern day, there, there are a lot of churches that will pride themselves or uh, market themselves as being a, a first century church. And, uh, and what they mean by that is they're doing their best to be the church we see in scriptures, not the church that is today represented by um, history and denominational divides and, and all the theological divisions, but to, to say, hey, we want to do our best to be purely a New Testament church. Now, that's, that's a very noble quest. And in a lot of ways, that's our journey as a church to say, God, lead us by the scriptures, Lead us by the scriptures, not being ignorant of our history, not um, being blind to the full story of the church, but to say, God, in its purest form, what is the church that we might be that church? But on the other hand, we have to keep in mind what we're about to read today as we see the first church emerge is that it's a church in its infancy. And in so many ways, it's very young and immature and not organized. And, and there are going to be a lot of real struggles we're going to encounter through the book of Acts. The good, bad, the ugly. The, the, uh, as we've already mentioned, the racial tensions. Um, how do you organize this thing when you go from 120 to over 3,000 in one sermon? Like, right, th these kind of things are going to begin to emerge for us. So we're not just looking at how do we do church purely like they're doing it, but how are they growing and how are they learning that we might grow 
and learn as a church as well. And so in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, we're going to see the first church. And what do we mean by the first church? This is not the first time that Jesus' followers have been together. But this will be the first time that Jesus' followers, disciples' followers, have come together in one place, worshiping, praying. The Holy Spirit has fallen and rested on them and empowered them to do what Jesus said the church would do. So what did Jesus say the church would do? What distinguishes a Christian church from any other church or religious organization at its basic components? What is the church? Is it, a, is it a style of worship? Is it, right? is, it, is it formal worship? Is it casual contemporary worship? Is it casual clothing? Is it formal clothing? Is it ornate designed architectural buildings? Or is it simple meeting in a tent? What is it at the basic level that determines a group of people getting together is a church rather than not being a church? Well, you remember in Matthew 16, and we're going to see today, um, how Jesus is leading his disciples even after his ascension through his spirit. In Matthew 16, at this point in the gospels, Jesus has quite a following of people. And he draws away though with the 12 closest followers, the disciples. And he asks them, he says, hey, who do the people out there say that I am? You may remember this conversation in Matthew 16. Some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets, and Jesus hones it in. He says, okay, guys, now, but who do you say that I am? Now, now Peter's going to take center stage in that conversation, right? The same Peter who's always putting his foot in his mouth, who's denying Jesus three times, but he's also the only disciple that got out of the boat and walked on water. He responds to Jesus by saying, you are the Christ, which is interpreted the Messiah. You're the Christ, the Son of of the living God. And Jesus responds to Peter in that moment. And what does he say? Peter, you didn't figure this out on your own, right? You're a little hard-headed. Yes, you got out of the boat, but then you quickly began to sink. Yes, you stood up for me in this moment, but then you denied me in this moment. Peter, you didn't figure this out with your own flesh and blood. My father revealed that truth to you. And it is upon this rock, this proclamation that I'm the Christ, the son of the living God, that I will build my church. So regardless of what style of worship a group of Christians may participate in, formal with the choir and an organ and a piano and an orchestra, or no instruments at all and just voices singing out to Jesus, or a guy up here with a guitar who loves Jesus leading us singing songs about Jesus, regardless of what style it is, it's the proclamation of who Jesus is that makes it a church. That's so refreshing to me in a day and time when there's so much division in the church. And we were talking about in our community group about our backgrounds. And it was just interesting to see how many of us, at least in our community group, who come from backgrounds at extreme ends of the spectrum when it comes to the Holy Spirit. Either came from a church where the Holy Spirit was never talked about, never taught about, right? Kind of the stepchild of the Trinity scenario or the other end of the spectrum where everything was about the Holy Spirit and there was no emphasis on Jesus and his sacrifice and evangelism and the, the sovereignty of the Father and everything was about the Holy Spirit shaking up the place. See, what we're, what we're looking at today, though, is how beautifully that when the Holy Spirit is truly present in the church, Jesus is proclaimed, the Father is submitted to, right? All of these things in balance. Now, we're gonna go through Acts 
the book of Acts together verse by verse. You'll notice in your sermon notes today, if you're taking notes, there's only three statements we're filling out. Some weeks we come in, there'll be 10 statements. Why is that? Well, here's why. When we go through the Bible, verse by verse, God gets to set the agenda. He determines what we're gonna talk about, right? He gets to, to lead us through discussions that we otherwise might've just skipped over or ignored. But in addition to that, not only is he setting the agenda, he creates a sense of significance in what's important. So we might read 30 verses and God's primarily saying one thing. So that in that particular week, we only have one fill in the blank. But in another week, we might read one verse and God is saying three equally significant things, right? And so as we go through the book of Acts, our primary question is not, God, where am I in this story? God, what does this mean for solid rock? We'll be asking those questions. But the primary question is, God, what are you saying? What do you want us to hear? What do you want us to learn that we might be the church that you're calling us to be? And so we're ready to get started now in verse 14. The Holy Spirit has fallen on these earlier, uh, these, this early Christian church. The Holy Spirit is audible in this moment of Pentecost, sound like a rushing wind in the place, visible. Luke describes it as tongues of fire as the Holy Spirit rested on each of these believers. They're speaking, even though they're not highly educated and don't speak a lot of languages, they're speaking and proclaiming the truths of Christ in a way that everybody in Jerusalem is able to understand it in their birth language. This has begun to draw a crowd around this house and presumably now they're taking their church meeting outside Right, we're gonna see how big this crowd is in just a minute. And so we pick up in verse 14 with Peter. And Peter's gonna stand up and he's gonna speak. Verse 14 begins, but Peter, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. So we'll stop right there. Right before this happened, there was 120 believers in the house. Now it seems like he's probably come outside, maybe into the street, and there's a crowd gathering, and he's addressing the whole crowd. Maybe he stepped up on a, on a rock or on a column. He got up in the air where he can see everybody. He's saying, listen, I, I've got to share something with you. So he, he continues in verse 15. He says, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Now, I don't know at what age your church experience began. If you grew up in church, um, you were probably grew up familiar with the church lingo and people singing and, and praying. And so church hasn't ever been that weird to you. But for those who come to church late in life, maybe as a teenager, as an adult, there's some things that can kind of catch you off guard, right? Like, why are these people singing about blood? <laughs> yeah. You need an explanation, right? We need to understand whose blood, and we, right? They're talking about the movement of the Holy Spirit or the Holy Spirit speaking. Am I supposed to be listening for something? Why is everybody standing and why is that lady crying? And why is that guy raising his hands? And that guy's up there preaching and he's reading from a book that's like old. Why is he doing that? Right? And so just being in the church can be a little bit weird, okay? So this is the setting, and so the explanation of the crowd that has gathered is, we read it last week, these guys must be drunk. I mean, this, this is just weird, whatever's happening right now. There's something kind of, either it's supernatural, or these guys are toasted. Well, what does Peter do? He says, hey, let me address this real quick. 
First of all, he says, guys, it's morning. We haven't had breakfast yet. It's the third hour. We're not drunk. So what he's going to do now is he's going to shift now to addressing that sense of explaining what's happening. So here's what he does. Verse 16. But this is what is uttered through the prophet Joel. So what he's going to do to explain what's happening at Pentecost is he's going he's to dive back into the Old Testament and he's going to quote some Old Testament scriptures to explain what's going on in that moment at Pentecost. So here's what he does. He quotes Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32, which we're not going to read, uh, but it's in your notes if you want to go back and look at it. So here's what he quotes. He says this, verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. What does he mean by that? He goes on to explain. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your older men will, shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and my female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So what he wants to do is he wants to explain to everybody listening what's going on right now. We're not drunk. We haven't been drinking. Matter of fact, we haven't even had our eggs and bacon yet. What you're experiencing is something that God promised hundreds of years ago. The way we know that is we go back and read what God spoke through prophets. And he points to the prophet Joel, chapter 2. Not the only place he could have gone. He could have gone to many places in the Old Testament where God's Holy Spirit was promised that it would come. Now, I want to I look at something specific about why he potentially may have went to Joel. As he continues on, he says this, I will show wonders this is still quoting Joel, when, he pours, when God pours out his Holy Spirit on all flesh, verse 19, I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs in the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and smoke. So, right, they just experienced some supernatural wind blowing, tongues of fire. See, he's quoting a scripture that's explaining this to them. But look at what he says. Then the sun shall be turned into or turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great magnificent day. Now, here's what I want us to, to think about for folks here, especially the folks gathering in the street who either didn't know anything about Jesus, and there's a lot of people there who had no idea about the, the Old Testament and how God spoke through the prophets. So he quotes a prophet who says, in, in this prophecy, God says, I'm gonna pour out my spirit on everybody, young and old, men and women, slave and free, pouring out my spirit generously. And you'll know it because of these miraculous, supernatural signs and wonders, right? But then he goes on to say what? That the sun will be darkened and the moon turned to blood. So try to put yourself in the context of one of these visitors here in Jerusalem, no bearings, right, on the Old Testament or what's happening. And I just heard him quote a prophet from several hundred years ago talking about the sun being darkened and the moon being turned to blood. Well, remember, this is Pentecost. This is 50 days or so after the death and resurrection of Jesus. Do you remember what happened on the day Jesus was crucified? There was a three-hour solar eclipse. And the sun was turned to darkness for three hours, from the sixth hour to the ninth hour. And what happened after that, most likely, is that there was a paschal full moon that afternoon. And so it actually came out early and appeared to be a blood moon. So for these people who had no sense of 
right? Jewish context, Old Testament. I don't know who Joel is, but he sounds like an important person to you. He said this several hundred years ago, that there will be miraculous signs and wonders happening when the sun is turned to darkness and the moon is turned to blood. Okay, now I'm listening. Right? Because it had only been 50 days. Whether you were living in Jerusalem or somewhere else, right, you saw and you witnessed that solar eclipse and the sun was turned to darkness for three hours. Now we're listening. But what I wanna, want us to see more than anything here are the main points that Peter is making. So as he quotes an Old Testament prophet to explain Pentecost, here are the three main points he's making. First of all, he wants everybody who's listening to understand we're being empowered by the Holy Spirit right now. Right? Don't be impressed. We're just Galileans. We're tax collectors and fishermen. There's no reason why you from Libya, Libya should be understanding the words coming out of my mouth. I've never spoke Libyan before. This is the Holy Spirit right now empowering us. We're not drunk. We don't have spies out there letting us know where you were born. You're hearing this being proclaimed in your birth language because we're being empowered by the Spirit of God. And the second thing he wants to make clear is this, that this Holy Spirit experience at Pentecost is the, is the arrival of a promise that God has made. Right? This didn't happen on a whim. It didn't catch these guys off guard. It wasn't unexpected. For hundreds of years, the people of God had been expecting and longing for God to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And so Peter wants everybody to understand that. This, this, this is something God said he was gonna do a long time ago, he's been saying this. And now the Holy Spirit is here. And third and finally, we see in verse 21, and I love that he quoted this part of Joel's prophecy in verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is the main point that I believe Peter is getting at. You're experiencing something supernatural today. It's been predicted this would happen for hundreds of years, if not thousands of years. And it's happening. But the main point of what's happening today is that you should be saved that you would be saved. Now, I don't know if you've ever struggled in your Christian journey when you read about what God's doing in the New Testament and asking yourself like at Pentecost, why aren't you doing that today? I mean, we just lifted up our voices to Jesus. We just prayed. We just did all the same things they were doing. How come no tongues of fire, wind blowing through the building, walls rattling here at Solid Rock today? Now, if you've ever struggled with that question, how come God's not moving like that today? You see, when we're asking that question, we're focusing on the secondary issue and we're completely missing the primary thing God's doing. Larry just said it before his prayer. The greatest miracle of God is when, not when he shakes the walls of buildings, but when he shakes the human heart and soul. And he calls a hard-headed, sinful, corrupt human being like me to himself. I'm, I'm just like, let me just put myself out there as an example of how miraculous God's spirit is. I'm the kind of guy that tends to lean on his own understanding, to reject what other people say to me, whether it's their rules, their ideas. I'd rather come up with my own. And when God's spirit started working in me at a young teenage, in a young teenage boy's heart, I was already very rebellious in my mind. I'd already kind of figured out how I thought life worked. And then God's spirit began to unveil my eyes to truth 
what was actually true. I mean, miracle. More miraculous to me than the Holy Spirit shaking the walls of this building today. Just my own salvation. And I would venture to guess yours is equally miraculous. Whether you were saved at six or 60, right? It's a miracle when God's spirit opens our eyes to see truth as he's gonna do here in this example and he's still doing today because the main point that Peter is making is this. The Holy Spirit is here. This was predicted, but here's why. Because God desires to save people. Now let's look at what he's gonna do starting in verse 22. So now what what Peter's gonna do, I'll give you the overview. He's gonna reach again into the Old Testament, into the Psalms, to two particular Psalms, Psalm 16 and Psalm 110, both wrote by King David. So he's gonna reach into the Psalms to proclaim a message to everybody who's listening. And here's what he does in verse 22. He says, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst as you yourselves know. So here's some things that would help us understand more of what Peter's doing. So in this particular day and time, Jesus was a pretty common name, okay? So he's identifying Jesus as the Jesus from where? Nazareth. And not only was Jesus a common name, there was an, another religious leader who, had an, had, who led a, a religious uprising who, whose name was also Jesus in this time, who was arrested and put to death. And so what he's doing is he's starting with the humanity of Jesus and he's identifying this is the one we're talking about. He's gonna say it at least two more times, this Jesus. So he wants to make sure we know which Jesus we're pointing to, right? He wants to make sure that we're not getting Jesus confused with another religious leader, a fantastic teacher. So you know, he wants us to know the specific Jesus that he has in mind. Going back to, again, I believe Matthew 16, right? Who do you say I am? was the question Jesus asked. So he says, this Jesus of Nazareth that was attested to you by God, mighty works, wonders, and signs, God did through him in your midst, and you yourselves know this. This Jesus, which one? This one, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified, you remember him? And you killed, you killed him by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up, loosening the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. So Peter starts with the humanity of Jesus, identifying which Jesus he's talking to, and he leads us to the deity of Jesus, right? Because he says what? God did all this stuff through him. If he had stopped right there, Jesus could have been a prophet, right? At that point, because God can work through a prophet and work through you and me. And, but where he ends is what? Remember how God raised him from the dead? Why? Because it was impossible for him to stay dead. Lazarus was raised from the dead, but not because it was impossible for him to stay dead, simply because God chose through Christ to raise him from the dead. But the one I'm talking about, this Jesus was one in whom he couldn't stay dead. Why? Because, in fact, Peter knows this truth. He is the Christ. He's the son of the living God. And the living God can't stay dead. And so now what he's going to do, he's going to begin to shift us towards, as we mentioned earlier, the Psalms. 
Before we go any further, if you're taking notes, let's fill out this first statement. As we get ready to fill this statement out, let me throw this out there. So, already talked about it. Lots of different ways to do church, right? A formal church setting with liturgy, responsive reading, prayers that are written out ahead of time, people who love Jesus and believe the Bible. Or maybe a more casual environment where there's some room for the freedom of the Spirit to guide, a general idea where we want to go in the service, but we're going to let the Spirit guide us. Love Jesus, believe the Bible. Uh, a church where, hey, we're not in the, in the zone, we're not worshiping unless the choir is, right, at full volume, the organ is on cue, the music director is guiding us, and we're all singing in unison the same song. Another church where what? We just want to sing a new song. Bands start playing, and we'll just follow you and go wherever the Spirit leads. People who love Jesus and believe the Bible both worship environments, right? So what is it that makes a church a church then? What determines a, a truly a Christian church from not a Christian church? We're already beginning to see it in Peter. Here's what it is. Everything the unstoppable church does and says must point to the truth that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. Does and says. We've got a really helpful sermon on our website from last um, December, last Sunday in December last year. Um, a good, good friend of mine, Divinity and Valentine preached on the Holy Spirit. He talked about, showed us from the scriptures that when the Holy Spirit is moving and speaking, he glorifies Jesus. He points us to Jesus. Right, So that's one indication that the Spirit is leading and guiding the church when we're making a lot of Jesus. We're beginning to see that now here in Peter as well. And so here's the thing. No matter what we do as a church, okay, so Jesus tells us to feed the hungry. You see somebody hungry, you feed them. He tells us to clothe those who don't have clothing. So you see somebody who's struggling, doesn't have clothes, right? You offer clothing. Uh, and we see somebody thirsty, we offer them something to drink. But everything that we do must ultimately point to what? The truth that Jesus is the Christ. So the point isn't that I just give you a bottle of water because you're thirsty. The point is what? I'm giving you a bottle of water because you're thirsty that you might understand the love of Jesus in a tangible way. So some of you will be out next Saturday serving our community by doing tangible things, washing windows, picking up trash, just being available for the Holy Spirit to use you. And there's a good chance when you do this kind of thing, somebody will come up to you and say, now, why are y'all doing this again? So your answer could be, oh, because we're a church on mission and we love to do mission. And so we wanted to be on mission in this community so you would know we were a church on mission. What church? Solid Rock Church. Go look us up on the website. Or, right, your answer could be what? In your own words, here, here's why we're out here today. We've been loved well by Jesus. And so we just wanted to share that with you in a tangible way. We just want to love on you well, let you know Jesus loves you. You may already know that. You may not know that. We want you to know Jesus loves you. You see, what we're doing needs to point to Christ. What we're saying needs to point to Christ. Whether it's in kids' ministry, women's ministry, men's ministry, Sunday morning, what we're singing, elder meeting, everything we do must point to Christ if we're going to be his church. Because he said what? I'm going to build my church on one foundation. What will that be? The proclamation that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. Everything we must do and say must point to Jesus. Now let's watch Peter do that here in this first church setting. He's going to quote six, Psalm 16 here. 
He says this, for David says, so he's talking about King David writing in the Psalms. For David says concerning him, talking about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand and that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life and you will make me full of gladness in your presence. Now, King David is writing that in Psalm 16, verses eight through 11. Now, what Peter's gonna do is he's gonna interpret that for us. Verse 29, brothers, this is Peter explaining to us. Brothers, I may, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us today. Now, why is that important? Because King David, 100 years before this, was writing about how God was not gonna let his soul see corruption and that God wouldn't cast him down to Hades. And he was writing about, as we're gonna read, the resurrection. And so what Peter is saying is, here's the thing, I can take you and show you where David was buried right? Who was David writing about? And look at what he says. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with him an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he being David foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. Peter is saying, David was not writing about David. David was writing about Jesus. And so what we just experienced here in Jerusalem over the last seven weeks, God has been all over this in the Old Testament. From the sun being turned to darkness, from his Messiah being crucified, killed, buried, raising from the dead. God has been all over this. Verse 32, Peter's gonna continue. He's gonna reach into the Old Testament to Psalm 110. This Jesus, God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Now that phrase seeing and hearing is so important when you read the Old Testament. Matter of fact, in Isaiah 6, the prophet Isaiah is overwhelmed by the presence of God, this throne room vision he has. And, and, and God's speaking to Isaiah, whom shall I send? And Isaiah says, oh, send me. And God says, I'm gonna send you, Isaiah, but here's your message. The people are gonna be ever hearing but not understanding. They're gonna see, but they're not gonna get it. Why? Because we need the Holy Spirit of God to see and to hear. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and I will make your enemies your footstool. Verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. See what he's doing? Let me tell you, about, let me tell you which Jesus I'm talking about. 
Let me explain to you what just happened over the last seven weeks. The plan for Jesus to die, God did that with his foreknowledge. It was his plan. Killed him. But he couldn't stay dead because why? Because he was the son of God. We know he's the son of God. Even the Old Testament writings point to the fact that he is in fact the son of God. Now, here's what I want to do. I want to take just a minute to understand kind of what's going on potentially in Peter's mind. Now, if you remember from two weeks ago, we looked at what Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 24. This is the end of the gospel of Luke, just before Acts starts. Jesus, after, after his resurrection, he has called his disciples to himself, and he's giving them the marching orders. He's telling them about the church. He's telling them about what they're going to be doing. Look at these verses in, in Luke 24 with me one more time. We'll put these on the screen, or you can turn there. Jesus is speaking, he, and it says this, Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the first five books of your Old Testament, the prophets, all the major prophets, all the minor prophets, and the Psalms, the poetic writings in your Bible, Ecclesiastes, Proverbs, Psalms, Songs of Solomon, that they must be fulfilled. So what Jesus is saying is that everything written in the Old Testament is kind of left open until it gets fulfilled. And here's what he's saying in verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the Bible, the scriptures, and he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning where? Jerusalem, your witnesses to these things. So this was the setup before the Holy Spirit ever showed up. And so what Peter is doing now is he's doing for this crowd what Jesus did for him. Jesus opened up the Old Testament and showed the disciples, right, how all the Old Testament promises are pointing towards him. And so now Peter is standing up in front of the crowd just doing what Jesus had done. Let me just show you who Jesus is. Jesus is, in fact, the main character here in our Old Testament. Paul says it like this in 2 Corinthians 1. All the promises of God find their yes in him. That's a really important verse. Everything that God promises finds its yes in Jesus. Think about that. The Old Testament is full of promises. Every promise you hear from God is ultimately pointing to who? Jesus. Now, that's not only how we're supposed to teach the Bible, that's how we're supposed to read it. I don't know if you've ever struggled to read the Bible in a way that you could understand it or that it had meaning to you. One of the mistakes that we make when we open the Bible is we, we open it looking for solutions to our problems. My boss is a jerk. Surely David wrote about having a jerk for a boss. No, who had a jerk for a boss? Uh, maybe, and so, right? And we go try to find the verse that's going to help us with our boss who's a jerk. My children won't obey me. Isn't there a verse about beat your children till they obey you somewhere? Paul said something about, I can't find it. See, we make, we make, a, we make a horrible Bible reading mistake when we come to the Bible simply looking for the solutions to our surface level problems. 
The solution to your problems is in here. But do you know the, pro, the primary problem, what the primary problem in your life is? It's not your boss. <laughs> I saw that. It's not your spouse either. You know what the primary problem in your life is? It's the same for me too, okay? It's, it's sin. That's the primary struggle in my life. So when my boss is a jerk, that's what makes me get angry at him rather than responding in love and patience and kindness, right? When my wife's not following my lead and being a, a godly biblical wife and I lose my patience with her, my problem isn't her, my problem is me, my sin. Because what, I'm called to love her as Christ loved the church. And he's been loving the church for a long time while the church has been disobedient and, 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 and selfish and, right? See, the, the solution to our problem is here, but when we just go flipping through here looking for matching up the solution to our problem, we completely miss it. But there's another problem that we face in reading the Bible. So often we open it up looking for, for ourselves, our own stories. What does this mean for me? And God said, listen, open the Bible, but don't look for yourself. Look for me. This is a revelation. This is a place we can go to find God, what he's like, what he, what he sounds like, the kinds of things he says to his people, truths to balance out all the not truths of our life. The world is lying to us on a daily basis, trying to convince us to believe in things that aren't true. How do we combat that? We go and we listen to the voice of God in scripture. And so what Peter is doing here is not just a good preaching strategy, right? He's doing the only thing he can do that has power to it, substance to it. Jesus said he was going to build his church based on the proclamation that he's the Christ, the son of the living God. How do I do that? Well, I know how he showed us to do that. He showed us to open the Bible and point people to him. You see what Peter's doing? Simply opening the scriptures and pointing people to Jesus. So as Peter opens the Bible, he thinks of God's promise to Abraham in Genesis 12. Ultimately, God was pointing where? To Jesus. 2 Samuel 7, where the, God speaks to the prophet, to King David, it says, David, one of your descendants is going to sit on your throne forever. What? That doesn't make sense. You mean one of my kids is going to live forever? Right? Because the prophet was pointing to who? Not his son Solomon, but to a descendant that would come hundreds of years later, Jesus. You see how Jesus is the yes of every promise in the Old Testament. You want your Bible to have more meaning and more importantly than that, to have a more significant impact on your life? Look for Jesus in it. Now, if you're taking notes, let's fill this out. The foundation of the unstoppable church is believing that Jesus is the central character and theme of the Bible's story. This is what Peter's believing right now and what he's proclaiming. That Jesus is the central character and theme. Why is that such an important point that we need to point out? Because here's the thing. Jesus wants to be the primary character and central theme of your life as well. What? You mean I got to share the stage with Jesus? No, actually Jesus wants you to get off the stage. <laughs> right? Jesus wants you to get off the stage. He wants to take over lordship of your life, which means there can't be two lords of your life, right? You'll love one and hate the other. You'll serve one and not the other. And Jesus said, listen, I actually designed you and your life and this world around you. Not only that, 
I foreknew you. Who better to guide your life but me? How old are you? But I'm 40 years old. Yeah, you want to lead your life with a 40-year-old perspective or an eternal perspective? Okay, right? So we get off the stage. We hand over the pen and say, all right, we talked about this this summer. Write a better story than I can write. Become the central theme of my life now, Jesus, the central character of my life. So Jesus isn't just the songs we sing on Sunday morning. It's the life we live on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday in our everyday conversations. So we see this here as the foundation of the unstoppable church, believing that Jesus truly is the Lord. Now, verse 37 um, this is cool. We're going to get to see now the response of the crowd, and we're going to get some indication of how big this crowd is. So how many people did we start with? About 120, okay? We keep that in mind. About 120, Holy Spirit lands at Pentecost, shakes the place up. These disciples begin to proclaim the gospel in a language that people are hearing it from all over the world. Peter preaches, shows everybody how Jesus is the Christ that was promised in the Old Testament, that God is led him to the cross, and he is resurrected from the dead. Now verse 37, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Let's stop there. They were cut to the heart. Now this is a really important phrase to understand. So when we hear this phrase, cut to the heart, first of all, what are we talking about? We're talking about something stirring in the depths of who these people are. That's below the surface, beyond the facade. And we're going to see in just a second something that's undeniably stirring within them. What is it? Well, Hebrews 4 gives us some indication of what's happening right here. Hebrews 4.12 says this, that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit. What is the word of God? To joints and to marrow and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. What can do that? The word of God. Now you see why Peter's preaching the word of God. It wasn't Peter's words or his excitement that had power here. It was something altogether different. We've read this a couple of times from Romans 10, 17. Faith comes from hearing and hearing what? The words of Christ. So as Peter, Peter, Peter's preaching, glad it wasn't a bad word. As Peter's preaching here and proclaiming the words of Christ, what's happening? The word of God is penetrating and dividing even the soul and spirit, penetrating to the depths of who they are. Remember the Holy Spirit speaking through these Galileans and they're hearing it what? In their birth language, their language of origin. They're hearing it in the depths of who they are. And they're, as described here in the scriptures, cut to the heart. Now here's what I love. Look at what happens next. They were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? This is so important because the, Peter hasn't said you need to do anything yet. This, this cutting of the heart, this experience of the Holy Spirit inside of them leaves them with no other option but to do something. There's got to be something we need to do now. What do we need to do in response to what's happening inside of us? Peter answers this in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of Holy Spirit. You feel everything we've learned just coming together right there? Jesus says to Peter and the disciples, go make disciples of the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded. Luke 24, he tells them, go open the scriptures for them, show them how it all points to me. 
and then repentance and forgiveness of sins will what? Be preached in my name. Acts 1.8, stay in Jerusalem. When the Holy Spirit comes on you, it'll come on you in power and you will proclaim. You'll be my witnesses to the ends of the earth. Starting in where? Jerusalem. You feel all this coming together? It's like everything from that, that we've read in the Bible from Genesis 1 to now is like coming together in this moment. And Peter says, here's what you need to do. You want to do something? Let's start with repentance. Well, what is repentance? It's so much more than just saying I'm sorry, right? Because I say I'm sorry all the time. Repentance is turning, right? It's a, it's a sense of turning from, finding my joy, my security, and my pleasure in sin to what? Finding my joy, my pleasure, my security in Christ. Repentance is a faith move, isn't it? I mean, it takes a lot, of, a lot to let go of my security. If I'm not a Christian, I've done my best to figure out how to manage my life and my world in a way where occasionally I can try to be happy. You're asking me to let go of everything that I've learned thus far? Everything that I've trusted in thus far? Yeah. Let go and turn to. It's a faith move. And when we do that, when we let go of ourselves and turn to Christ, when we, we take ourselves off of the Lordship center stage position in our hearts, we turn to Christ and put him there, what we receive is what? Forgiveness of sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And he will begin to do a miraculous work in you. Church, hear me today. Don't long for the Holy Spirit to rattle the walls of this building. That was just like a byproduct of what the Holy Spirit's doing here. Long for the true miracle. Changed hearts, healed lives, supernatural work in the depths of who we are, a filling of the Holy Spirit, a kindling of, of love and compassion and, and humility that's beyond you, that's completely, right, other than you, supernatural. Because see, look, these guys, they could have said, okay, wait, wait, wait. How do we get the building rattling, wind blowing, fire tongue thing going on? Right? That's not what Peter says. He said, repent. Believe in Jesus and you'll receive the true miracle, which is what? Forgiveness of sins and the filling of the Holy Spirit. That cut to the heart thing, yeah, that's the miracle Jesus is after right now. If you're taking notes, let's end here. The power of the unstoppable church is found in the presence of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. The presence of the Holy Spirit and the proclamation of the gospel. I wanna say a couple of things to Solid Rock, okay? If you're visiting with us, just overhear this conversation. Listen, church, the true power of Solid Rock Church is not found in a clever mission statement, how awesome our music is, what style of preaching we have, whether or not we're casual or formal, the power of God through us will only be found in the presence of his Holy Spirit and the proclamation of his gospel. That is what unlocks eternity. That is what ushers in the powerful movement of the Holy Spirit. I don't care what end of the spectrum you come from on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a genie in a bottle to be conjured up to, to do the things we want him to do. He is very much God. He is very much carrying out the will of God here on earth. Our job isn't to get him to do what we want him to do, but the other way around, to learn to submit to what he wants us to do. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a part of God to be ignored, to pretend like, even though you might be uncomfortable with the idea of the Holy Spirit to be, right, pretend like the Holy Spirit is not alive and living. The Holy Spirit is God. The Holy Spirit's not dead. The Holy Spirit can't be dead. The Holy Spirit is the eternal spirit of the living God. And he is in this place. He's in this place right now. And he is in the hearts of his people right now. Let's end here as our worship team comes back up. I just wanna lead us in a time of prayer if I could. I'm gonna give you a minute before I say anything at all just to calm your hearts and begin thinking about what God has spoken to you this morning. Just take a minute to do that. If you're here this morning and and maybe you're not a a Christian and and for the first time in your life, you're beginning to sense that there's something stirring inside of you, something going on other than you. I want you to understand that that is the loving, compassionate, kind, holy spirit of God. And he's calling to you. He's inviting you. And his invitation is for you to come to him by faith, to bring the mess that is your life and to lay it down at the foot of the cross and say, God, here's the mess I've made. Here are the sins that I have committed against you and against other people and I'm laying it all down I'm turning to you that I might receive what we just read about in the scriptures that I might receive that forgiveness and the gift of your Holy Spirit to guide me and comfort me in this life if that's you right now I want to just lead you in in a prayer now that you can pray along with me or you could pray by yourself later today or in one of our prayer rooms or right where you're seated, but to become a Christian simply means to believe that Jesus is who he says that he is. In your own words, to come to him in faith and just pray and say, Jesus, I believe. Just like we just read about in Acts 2, I believe that you truly are that Christ, the one that was promised the only one who can save me. I believe you are the son of God. And now I'm turning my life over to you. Please forgive me of my sins. Please be my Lord and my savior. If you've prayed that prayer this morning or one like it, I want to to invite you to do something bold. I want to invite you to share that with somebody. You you don't have to stand up and speak, but sometime today I want you to let somebody know that today you've decided to trust in Jesus. Our prayer partners will be available at the back of the room during these next two songs. 
If you'd like to go share that with them and ask them to pray with you or maybe explain to you more about becoming a Christian, they would love to do that. This morning, if you just wanna stay seated or if you wanna kneel and pray, I wanna, I wanna let you know that's okay in this place. If you wanna stand and sing, just pour your heart out before the Lord. I wanna invite you to do that as well. But let's allow God's spirit to do more than just move through this building. Let's allow God's spirit to move in our lives, to cut to the heart of who we are. And let's respond to him now in Jesus' powerful name.